Thank you for choosing the podcast of East Haven Baptist Church in Brookhaven, Mississippi. For more information on the ministries of East Haven and to access videos and sermon notes from our services, visit www.easthaven.net. This morning, leading us so well, I am encouraged by seeing the choir. We're going to take a little survey. You got to be honest. Let me say that again because I know how this works. You got to be honest. How many of you at some point in your life have sung for some period in a choir? Raise your hand. There's several liars in the room. Most of you at some point. Uh, I see that there's room in the choir. And some of you who haven't done that since the 60s ought to ease back up there or the 70s. Or the 80s, you ought to ease up into the choir because that is such an encouragement and a way to lead worship and uh, so effective. Thank you for that. Uh, had an incredible time this weekend being with you at Trunk or Treat last night uh, in spite of the fact that we had perfect weather through 5 to 7 o'clock. It didn't look like it was going to be that way. I drove down. I, I had to attend a funeral in French camp yesterday morning or actually early afternoon skipped the funeral, couldn't do that and be here. So I drove down and, and there was a little rain. I got to Kapaya County. It was the tornado watch time. And I didn't know that I could see the road in front of me. Uh, it was flashing lights and cars. As soon as I got to Brookhaven, the sun came out. <laughs> and the Brookhaven blessing occurred. And it was just like a nice fall day in Brookhaven. It was like the Wizard of Oz and we were going to be blown away in Wesson. But in Brookhaven, it was awesome. It was an incredible night and such a high level of involvement by adults and volunteers. I walked the building over and over and over meeting folks and uh, much of the community was here. It was just a great event. And I'm going to give you like $1,000 worth of training here in about 10 seconds. When you volunteer and you engage in what that event, the goal is not the event. The goal is the next step. Let me say that again to you. The goal is the next step. Some of you may be here today because you came last night. I had a number of people who said they might be, and that would be such a privilege to have you here today. But East Haven folks who volunteer, I want you to know the goal is to build some relationships for a next step to invite some folks to be a part of the body of Christ that is East Haven. And I heard some of those conversations. I want to congratulate you folks and encourage you, but I want all of us to know uh, we're not having an event just to have an event. We have events because we're trying to reach into the community. Because we have a gospel, we have a hope, we have a life, we have a Savior that we want to share with people who need to know Jesus. If you're watching today online, uh, I'm grateful for you. I heard several people yesterday who watch online. And on behalf of the East Haven family, thanks for being with us wherever you are watching online. And there are a lot of great reasons and privileges to having an online church worship presence uh, I just want you to know, uh, everybody, I've got two of the cutest grandkids ever. But occasionally, we use FaceTime. Have you people discovered the magic of FaceTime with your grandkids? Um, I mean, it's, it's super cute. Their face fills up your little phone. And, hey, you know, it's all of that. 
Now, I've got a year-and-a-half-old grandson, which I'm going to show one morning. He should be a male model. He's incredible at a year-and-a-half-old. Now, my granddaughter, who is also a beautiful young lady, she brings some she brings some stuff to the table. Uh, somebody in our extended family, nobody related to me genetically, took her someplace yesterday, last night, where there was a mechanical witch about six feet tall saying something like, I'll get you. My granddaughter's three and a half years old. She should not be traumatized. Can I just go on record? But she wasn't because we got a little of that video and she put her hands on her hips and she said, well, that's weird. (laughs) She's a character. I I probably told you the story, but she walked into a cabin and didn't know what they were doing there and said, what are we trying to do here? She was two and a half. She is a pill. And I will on occasion have the opportunity to do FaceTime with my kids and their kids, my grandkids. And it's awesome. But here's, here's the hit. It's not nearly as good as being there. Can you just say with me, not as good as being there? Say it with me. Not as good as being there. So people watching online, there are a lot of great reasons. Man, I had a broken ankle. We've been sick. We've had COVID twice. Uh, can you relate? And online is such a blessing But I want to tell you, it is not as good as being there. So find, if you can, if you're able, if you're mobile, find the body of Christ and connect to people that you can sit next to and sing with and worship with and be encouraged with, study God's word, and be available to love and to be loved. It's great to see you this morning. Let me tell you what we're doing. Uh, just to catch you up to speed. Uh, It also dawns on me, and I I don't know if all of you have this perspective, but standing where I stand over the years in a number of different settings, I'm aware that any given Sunday could be the first Sunday somebody's been here. Any given Sunday. Or the way the culture works these days, it's just a matter of fact, uh, people who are committed to the body of Christ, the survey say, and it's not East Haven or Brookhaven specific, but the broad survey say that people who consider themselves committed to the body might only attend church once every three to four weeks. Think about that. Now that's, uh, I'm looking at familiar faces week after week. That's probably not you, but generally people are busy. And in certain seasons of life, In the time of 24-hour-a-day opportunity, the time of extended sports, the time of recreation, the time of travel and opportunities uh, to take your family or meet your family or to move to other places and do other things, one in three weeks is about what the national average is. So I am a compulsive communicator. So that's why I have to catch up and bring everybody along with me every week. And I hope you'll indulge me. If you feel a little repetitive, uh, I've also learned that repetition is a good thing. I'm aware that somebody might be here for the very first time, and I want to tell you what we're doing. We're studying the book of Romans. The book of Romans is a letter written 2,000 years ago to the church at Rome. It was those Romans who were the called-out ones who called themselves the church. And it was written by Paul 
who had formerly been known as Saul. He was a trained rabbi. I mean the high end of the high end of trained rabbis. He was so Jewish and so rabbinical and such a leader that he was responsible for much of the persecution of the early Christians. Can we take it aside for a moment? Why were the early Christians persecuted? Because they bucked the system. Because they said the Messiah has come. And because they said the Messiah has come, those who had control and structure for generations and generations and generations, starting out in well-meaning obedience, were threatened by the fact that the Messiah may well have come. Historical note, there were others who claimed to be the Messiah. I don't know if you know this, but there were sects, S-E-C-T-S, groups who often gathered and said, we have additional revelation and, and our leader is the Messiah. It would be some rabbi or somebody who would think that they were God's gift and the Savior to their people. But Jesus of Nazareth, well, he came with the prophecies. He came with the miracles. He came with the announcement of the, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. He demonstrated his love. We'll read this in that while we were sinners, he died for us. And then the resurrection, which put God's seal of approval in a practical way in the real timeline of humanity to say, this was indeed my son. If you hear Jesus, he'll say, when you've seen me, you've seen the father. And the Jews knew what he meant. When he said that, they called it blasphemy. They said that he hung out with sinners. Thank goodness Jesus hung out with sinners. But the Jewish people who lived to command and legalism were threatened by that. So Paul, who wrote the book of Romans, had an experience, as many of us know, with Jesus face-to-face after the resurrection where Paul was called to be an apostle, called to be a leader of the church. And Paul, who was highly educated and highly influential, comes to faith in Christ and begins to send these letters and to plant churches and to encourage the body of Christ as it spread throughout the known Western world. So the book of Romans is an epistle. It's a letter. And I said three, four weeks ago, you know, sometimes we read letters uh, in funny ways in church where we'll just deconstruct the book or the letter line by line or word by word. There's nothing wrong with that, but we might miss the impact of the whole letter. So I'm finding a happy medium here. We're taking the big chunks, the big view of the book of Romans. It also has been my observation and some of my education over the years that many people know pieces of a book or pieces of a theological framework, but they don't know the big picture. And as much as I can, with what tools I have, and I'm not the most rigorously educated guy that you're going to ever have standing here, yet I am trying to to distill into the simplest form the truth about who God is and what he has done for us, and that includes our need for him, our circumstance. That takes me to Romans. Paul writes, and he says, I've always longed to come to you, church at Rome. But he didn't get there. But he loved them, and he knew that all roads led to Rome and that the gospel was spreading there. And this is his longest letter, which is a theological treatise. That's kind of a dissertation. It's a big paper that says this is what 
Our situation is, as mankind, this is what the Jews and Gentiles look like. Here's the human condition that God has intervened in to bring what we'll talk about today, justification and reconciliation and righteousness. So he's writing this letter and he says, I've wanted to come to you. I love you and what you're doing for the kingdom. And then he begins this foundation and he says, everybody is in the same boat. Everybody. Uh, Man's without excuse, the scripture says in Romans 1. Why? We're without excuse because from the very beginning of time, God's nature has been demonstrated in nature and in his Uh, is characteristics which every man can see. In our heart of hearts, men know that there is a God who has created, and yet we've chosen to reject him and go our own way. As a matter of fact, that rejection, Paul writes, goes so far as to build uh, animals and idols, things cast in our image even. And then we have gotten so far that God has said, okay, I'll give you over to your own desires, You just go and live a reprobate life because you've turned your back on me. And then Paul begins to unpack how God has moved into time and space to provide a faithful, righteous response to man's need. Last week we talked about, uh, among other things, the need for righteousness. And we got to Romans 3. And we read the verse that many in this room have memorized at some point in your life, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then the verse goes on and it talks to us about God's righteousness. He says, and we're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. You remember three, four weeks ago I also talked about justice, getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. It's having the penalty or what you deserve being set aside, and grace is receiving what you don't deserve. And Paul writes, and he says, we all deserve death. We all deserve the punishment that comes from a lack of righteousness. But God has freely expressed his grace to us. And that is gigantically good news. Uh, Today, We're in the fourth chapter of Romans. If you have a Bible, you might turn there. We're going to put these verses on the screen. And I'm doing, uh, here's, here's Speech Coach 101. I'm doing what I don't recommend, which is reading copious amounts of Scripture out loud off a screen to a room full of people. And I'm just asking you to indulge me because it's God's Word and it's important. And I really believe we... Uh, we benefit from, from sort of immersing into God's Word together. There's nothing wrong with reading a verse, and, and uh, uh, the common phrase these days is unpacking that or exegeting that. But this is a little different. We're looking at these high marks in Romans, so we're going to read a lot of Scripture together. Uh, 4, 1 through 17. 
Remember, we've just talked about righteousness some, and we're all in the same boat. And he continues to write, and he says, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. Can we stop right there? Back up for me one slide. If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. Kind of keep that in your mind because this is central to what we're talking about this morning. It applies to all of us. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received a circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he is the father of all who believe, but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is then also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Let's stop right there. When you see the word circumcised, think uh, signaling being a Jewish person, being a part of the favored, chosen people of God. And so far, and we'll talk about this in just a moment some more, but so far what we've seen is Paul's writing and he said, faith credited righteousness to Abraham even before he was circumcised. So it wasn't about willingness to to sacrifice his son. It wasn't about his faithfulness in being a father at 100 years old. It was a faith that was credited to him because of his faith. Continuing in 13, it was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing and the promise is worthless because the law brings wrath and where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed. The God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Okay, that's a lot. And I know that that's a lot. So 
with much reverence, exalting the Scripture, trying to be God-honoring and faithful to the Scripture in every way. I'm going to try to distill that down a little bit. Now, I do that with a sense of, of appropriate fear and trembling because I'm not pretending to tell you these 17 verses. I know better, so I'm going to make three concise statements. Sometimes preachers sound like that. That's not what I'm doing. But I'm asking for wisdom today to bring this into a place where, where we gain some main themes of this passage and we don't delve too deeply for the sake of distraction. So, so work with me and indulge me for just a moment. Here's the deal. Paul is writing to Gentiles and Jews. He is the Jew of the Jews, and he's included Gentiles in the people who are to be saved. That means all of humanity. And the Jews, many of them, even some who followed Jesus, are kind of shaking their fist, saying, I think you need to be a Jew first, the Judaizers, if you know that name, before becoming a Christian. That's kind of popular thinking and rational rabbinical thought. And Paul is saying, no, this is not about becoming a Jew and keeping the law or keeping the commandments or being a legalist. It is about having faith because faith, even on the part of Abraham, who was seen as the father, uh, the recipient of the covenant, even Abraham, in his obedience, as important as it was, had his righteousness credited to him by faith. It wasn't the obedience. And here's how it works in us. If you think your relationship with God is built on your obedience, you're in trouble. I should hear an amen right there. If you believe your relationship with God is built on your faith and your obedience, or or your obedience, I should say, pardon me, if you think it's built on your obedience, you're in trouble. And the people said, amen Amen is right. Because we've all sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. And the fact is we're all broken. And God is working from the inside to the outside of us by the release of his spirit to sanctify us, to conform us to the image of Christ. But if you think you can be good enough to hold on to your salvation, or you think you're good enough to somehow achieve righteousness and right standing on your own, you're deceived. But the Jews, and, and sometimes we use this big hammer to say, but the Jews were legalists, or the Jews were all about the commandments. Well, of course they were. In Deuteronomy, uh, for instance, Deuteronomy 7 um, and 8, God's given in Deuteronomy 6 in our Bible, given the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. You ought to impress this upon your children. You ought to speak about it and you're going out, you're coming in, you're lying down, you're getting up. A little later in this discourse, uh, the Lord says through his word, know therefore that the Lord God is God. He is faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands. And a little later this, when you've eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he's given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God and fail to observe his commands. Well, the Jews, God's favored covenant chosen people, took keeping God's commands 
with this natural drift that we do into the point that they had created minutiae about every little aspect of life in order to justify themselves and find themselves righteous. So if I'm going to keep the Sabbath holy, then I am going to need to walk, but how far can I walk? And we would have a council, and the council of rabbis and the council of the teachers would say, well, based on the Torah, here's how far you can walk. And they could walk, whatever it was, 239 paces. And after that, it became work. And work was sinful. And in order to keep the commands, you could only work and walk so far. Jesus was in trouble about this all the time. Do you remember your Bible? Jesus was doing crazy things like healing people and loving people and providing for people on the Sabbath. And the people who had extrapolated these commands to legalism, they were offended by that. It happens for us. We know the gospel. Most of the people in this room have handled their Bible and they've been under great teaching and preaching and in Sunday school classes. And you know the gospel, but we can subtly think if I'm good enough, God is obligated to save me or to bless me or to keep me. And we hear this kind of line in the common culture, which is uh, a misreading of 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness and not read that in context. So somebody well-meaning will say, well, you better have a sin list and make sure that your sin list is up to date. Sin lists are a good idea, and you ought to be up to date with God. I should be. But I'm going to go ahead and tell you something. If you've got coveting in your heart or lust in your heart, or you've done something stupid and made a bad decision and die in your sleep, he's still got you. Because it's not your obedience in that moment that keeps you. It's his grace to you. And if it's not, you and I are in trouble. Because there's no possible way you and I can make a sin list long enough to cover a sinful heart. How do we become righteous? How do we become justified? Well, that's part of this this argument. And it's not a one-on-one argument. It's a rationale, uh, something for our thinking that Paul engages in with the church in Rome to say, Gentile or Jew... You can't work enough to become righteous. The answer has always been faith. It's always been faith. And then verse uh, 18 through 24 of chapter 4, faith was credited as righteousness against all hope. Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet, he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Can we stay here? 
We are credited with righteousness by faith. That's for us. That's for us, East Haven. That's for us, Brookhaven. That's for us believers to whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him, faith him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. This is gigantic. The truth is that uh, faith is credited as righteousness for us because your works will not be credited as righteousness. Let me say that again. Your faith is credited as righteousness because your works won't be. Now, why is that? Because Jesus makes us, in fact, credited, reconciled, justified as righteous. This verse, verse 25, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. That's verse 25. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Now, what is justification? Justification, I've I've got a friend who says the word justification, he thinks justify is just as if I. There's some truth to that. Theologically, justification is this. You have your sins set aside. They're justified by one who can reconcile that ledger and no longer hold that against you. It's an expression of mercy. So we talk about justice, our sin, getting what we deserve. Mercy, that is this justification We've been justified by a work outside ourselves, which has removed the penalty of sin from us. And that's really important because you can't be good enough to do it on your own. And then chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. We boast in the hope of the glory of God. And what does that mean? Ladies and gentlemen, boiling it down, we have a righteousness that is an expression of God's grace to us. And we boast in our hope of this righteousness for the glory and to the glory of God. It's about him. I've said and you've heard that God sometimes calls us trophies of grace. We're the, we're the pictures, the expressions, the results of his grace extended. The trophies of grace. Our hope is in his glory. Our hope is in his righteousness. And as, as teaching as this feels, this is really critically important. Because tonight when you go to bed, you have no righteousness on your own. You have a righteousness and a justification for your righteousness that is affected by faith in Jesus. I quote often one of Paul's other writings to the church at Galatia. And Galatians 2.20 says, For I have been crucified with Christ And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And then the fifth chapter, verses 3 through 11. 
I love these verses. And you'll read along. Let me read here. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Okay, let's just stop there. This is where it gets hard for me. And I have a sense of, if we were honest and we read this, thinking about some of our lives, some of you would join me and say, it's hard for me too. Most of us do not say, hey, sign me up for additional sufferings. I mean, the loss of a, a spouse, a parent, a child, a friend, a bad diagnosis, unfair treatment in the workplace, difficult relationships, estrangement from loved ones, some physical difficulties that you may live with chronically, suffering. Or maybe it's suffering that comes from persecution. Maybe you've been set to the side by somebody who shouldn't have set you to the side simply because you had a standard and and you wanted to live in a way that would please the Lord. We have sufferings. Paul writes and he says, and this is to the church at Rome, and there's going to be some sufferings. He says, not only this justification, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. You know, we have a line in our family, which I've used here, first world problems, first world problems. Uh, You know, I don't get a parking space close enough to the door at Walmart, first world problem. I can't believe they put pickles on my hamburger. First world problem. I went, to, I went to Walmart. They didn't have soft Charmin. They only had extra strong Charmin. That, that's a first world problem. I broke my ankle about a year and a half ago. And just for the record, it's highly inconvenient. It's, it hurt. And it was hard to sleep. And I had the soft cast and the hard cast and the soft cast and the, uh, the scooter. Got to love the scooter. Hello. Hello, Walmart. Hello, Kroger. Love the scooter. A lot of you have been on the scooter. I think we're all destined for the scooter at some point. You know what I mean? I was on the scooter. But I said, tried to give myself perspective Gary, it's a first world problem. You're on your little leather couch in your little house in Madison with your 600 cable channels in your air condition with your kids running to Chick-fil-A. Shut up. First world problem. That's not what was happening here. Paul's writing in anticipation and by the hand and the work of the Holy Spirit to talk about suffering. And it can be in line of persecution. It's going to bring perseverance and it's going to bring character and that character is going to bring hope when we live through that and we see God's faithfulness demonstrated hope does not disappoint us verse 5 says because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us you see at just the right time when we were still powerless Christ died for the ungodly hey you know who the ungodly is that's you and me. That's you and me. This is not just a theological document for somebody in Italy 
2,000 years ago. This is us. At just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We're going to stop there because that's a stopping place to stop and camp for just a moment. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners. So our faith in him, credited to righteousness, because he's justified, he's set apart the penalty, because he's taken the penalty upon himself, therefore justifying God's righteous nature. Somebody had to pay the price. Jesus pays the price, so you and I do not have to. And that just doesn't seem fair. You know why? It is not fair. It is grace. It's grace. And grace truly is amazing in light of our desperate situation. We are completely lost apart from the grace of God. Can I just take a moment and tell you how that, how that kind of shakes out? I'm just going to do this for a minute. I'm going to take this broken knee down to the ground, this broken ankle too. Here's how it shakes out. When you realize how lost you are and how good God is, it does a number of things to you in the relationship to other people. You look and you say, oh my gosh, that was ridiculous behavior, or they hurt me, or they offended me, or we're all suffering together. But I get it because you and I together are lost and hopeless without a Savior. Because we're recipients of grace, we want to give that grace away. Why is that? Practically speaking, it's because the Holy Spirit of God lives within us. And God's heart is to extend grace to every person you encounter. It is to conform you to the image of Jesus. And Jesus was about calling these days the the Son of Man would call these days the kingdom of God. And we're a part of the kingdom of God extending grace by the work of the Holy Spirit living from the inside to the outside of us. And we're most aware of that and we're most amazed by its grace when we realize how desperately sinful we are. My tendency, I'm kind of a fixer. Uh, Encouragement is how I manage and lead historically. But I'm really aware that the gospel begins at how desperately needy we are. I I had a leader in a church that I pastored years ago who said, Gary, you're just too negative about all this sin stuff. People, we're dead and hopeless outside of the grace of God. And when we start believing the lie that you can live your best life by getting up earlier, exercising more, being positive, you've believed the lie. That doesn't work. It is about God's spirit inside of you changing you from the inside out. That's the only way there's a depth of satisfaction. And that's a joyful life when you know the grace of God. So what do we know here? God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ dies for us. That's the good news. That's the gospel. That's Paul. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God to salvation for all who believe, 
both the Jew, the covenant people, and the Gentile. It's for everybody. Today, here's what I know. In this room, uh, most of the people in this room, and I'm speaking just very generically, are believers. You've trusted Christ. You've handled his word. Your spirit has borne witness with the spirit of God that you belong to him. You've grown in your faith. But for somebody in here, the good news today may be you, you have a hope. And your hope is that you're justified by faith because God really loves you. And he demonstrates his love for you. And that while we're still sinners, Jesus would die for us. It's not about being good. Can't be good enough on your own. It's about the fact Christ, who was good, took the penalty of your sin and mine. We preach that all the time, but that truth ought to go to Walmart with you and to school with you. The truth that God lives in me by his grace to demonstrate his grace and to share his grace with others, to love people well because he values people. I want to pray for us, and this morning I want you to know um, that the, the preacher, whoever comes to pastor here, and the next speaker, and the past pastors, we're not priests. Uh, we are shepherds, and there is a sense of responsibility and calling there, but we don't stand between you and God, but we're speaking to God on your behalf in the sense that because we love you, because this is the truth of the gospel. We want God to honor himself and we want our hearts to align with him. So when I pray for you, it's not a priestly prayer. It's a prayer of a fellow struggler who's received grace. Because my heart is that all of us would practice his graceful presence in our lives. Would you bow your head? Just close your eyes and I'm just gonna give you a minute to settle. Bow your head, close your eyes. In a minute, we're going to have an opportunity to put some feet to what God might be doing in our heart and our life. I'm going to pray for us. In just a minute, you'll have an opportunity to make any decision that God's placed in your heart in a concrete way. A little bit like the message of, and I know your head's bowed and your eyes are closed. But a little bit like the message of FaceTime, it's better together. And if you don't have a church that you belong to, that belongs to you, I can't think of a better place than this one. Perhaps God would be leading you here. If today for the first time, no matter what age you are, you've realized I'm a sinner, Christ died for me, I live by faith, this would be a great day to say, I, I'm, my yes is on the table for Jesus. I want to follow him and receive him and love him and trust him. For some of you, there are issues of obedience like baptism. You just, you put it off. Some of you, new to the community or guest for the first time, and you realize this is a place I could love, be loved, and serve. If any of those things are true or perhaps you need prayer for something going on in your life, I'd be honored to pray with you as would others. Allow me to speak to the Father. Father, we are grateful for your grace and the fact that our faith is credited as righteousness. And 
Lord, we recognize even our faith is because you've given us the breath to breathe, the life that we live. This morning, Father, my heart is for the men and women, boys and girls in this room who may have never trusted you. They may have never faithed you. And I pray today would be a time of of conviction and decision that they would trust you with all that they have. Lord, I'm grateful that the book of Romans that you've given us is is so full of truth. And Lord, I'm, I'm aware we've just scratched the surface. But your truth has been compelling. We can't be good enough. We have no righteousness of our own. You've, you've justified us by setting aside the penalty of sin. And Jesus has demonstrated his love for us in that while we were those sinners, Christ died for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We celebrate you and we lift your name up today. So Father, for man or woman, boy or girl, family, couple, young couple, whoever you would bring to be a part of this body, we pray boldness and courage, decisive action, an obedient response to the work of your spirit. We love you. We're grateful that as the body of Christ, we got to have this time together. And I ask you to move as only you can. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to sing together, which is an expression of worship. Continued. If God's done something in your heart, your life today, you need to be a part of this body. You want somebody to pray with you. Uh, You've got an area of obedience, baptism, or church membership, or trusting Christ for the first time. We'd love to pray and visit with you. So as Robert, team lead, uh, I'll be at the front. Phil will be available. There are other church leaders around. We'd love to pray and encourage you. Let's worship together.